Ephesians 6.15 is the text for this morning. We spent the last several weeks uh, beginning our journey through the Christian's armor. We've been looking at each piece of the full armor of God. Our study this morning brings us to the third of seven critical pieces of spiritual armor that the effective Christian warrior, that's you, that's me, friends, the effective Christian warrior must wear. Taking you back a couple of weeks, the first piece of armor that Paul directed our attention to was that belt of truth. Paul said that we needed to be braced by a firm grasp of the eternal truth of God, God's revealed divine, inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word. It needs to have grip on our hearts. It needs to have grip on our minds. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. God's word must penetrate our hearts and it must penetrate our minds. And when it does so, it changes us. God's word, when when it is received in its objective sense. In other words, when I sit down in front of my Bible and I study it and I meditate on it and I have quiet times and devotional times and Bible studies, when God's objective revealed word comes into my heart and into my mind, it changes who I am. It changes my character. You've heard me say a hundred times before, and I'll continue to beat this drum so long as I live much time in God's word, finish the sentence, results in much resemblance to God's Son. Much time in God's word results in much resemblance to God's son. When we have a firm grasp on the objective revealed word of God, it causes our character to change. The truth of God causes us to be growing in a truthful character or to have a life that is marked by integrity, consistency. We must embrace the truth, but more importantly, the truth must have a firm hold or a firm grasp on our lives. Is it true of you? Is that true of you? For many of us, or for some of us rather, we go home on Sunday mornings and we put our Bible down on a nightstand or on a dresser or on a counter or on a table and we don't pick it back up for another 168 hours until we come back to church again. Brothers and sisters, we need to be feeding on, feasting on the Word of God. It must be uh, getting its way, making its way into our heart and into our mind. Talked about that belt of, belt of truth must encircle our minds as the belt encircled the soldier's waist. The second piece of armor that we need to clad ourselves with is that breastplate of righteousness, Paul said. I noted last week as we studied the the breastplate of righteousness that as the belt of truth protects the mind and it transforms our character, so the breastplate of righteousness protects our heart and it transforms our purity. Remember the purpose of the breastplate of righteousness? The breastplate is that Greek word thorax. It protects everything from your neck to your waist, uh, which what's housed there, friends? All of your internal organs, everything that is necessary for you to live is contained in your thorax, your what your breastplate would cover. We said, namely, out of all of those, out of all those parts, out of all those vital organs, the the one place that Satan would love to attack, the, the one target that he would love to have access to is the Christian's heart. Because if Satan can meddle his way in the Christian's heart and and bring guilt and a sense of shame and condemnation there again, then he can make you and he can make me ineffective warriors on the battlefield. 
I submit to you that there are many Christians in this life who just bounce through the Christian life with a low-grade sense of guilt, shame, and condemnation. And I've mentioned this before, but I can tell you where your eyes are. When, when, when you and I, and I am you, okay? I, I'm in the crosshairs this morning too. When you and I are struggling with guilt and shame and condemnation, our eyes are focused inward and not upward. I mentioned Robert Murray McShane's wise words last week, for every look you take at yourself, take ten long stares at Christ. Every time that you are tempted to look at your failure, every time that you are tempted to, to wade into the pool of guilt and shame, looking inward, Remind yourself of who Christ is and what he's accomplished for you. We must be clad with the breastplate of righteousness. We must remember that as surely as he, Jesus, stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. I am his and he is mine. We've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And so now standing securely in the righteousness of Christ, what he has purchased for us on Calvary's cross, now I can be growing in a subsequent righteous life. Now this morning, we turn to the third critical piece of armament, and that is the gospel shoes of peace. Shoes are a very important part of daily life, are they not? Every parent present this morning whose son or daughter owns Legos knows the importance of shoes. How many parents have been taken down on the minefield of the living room floor. Boy, that'll bring out what's in the heart pretty quick, right? Luke 6.45, out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Step on some Legos. See what comes out. That's why we need that belt of truth firmly encircled around our hearts and our minds. Every parent whose child owns Legos knows the importance of something to cover your feet. But infinitely more important than shoes to navigate the living room floor are shoes to enable us to expeditiously move on the battlefield of the Christian life. Let me remind you, friends, we are engaged in a very real battle. Say battle. With a very real enemy. Say enemy. With a very real and lasting consequence. Say consequence. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. We are engaged in a very real battle with a very real enemy with very real and lasting consequences. So let's turn our attention this morning to this third critical piece of armament with, what, with which we must clad ourselves. Let me encourage you to stand with us as we read God's Word if you have the ability. Our study this morning will confine us to one verse, that is Ephesians 6, verse 15, but we'll read the entire text in its context so that we understand what Paul is saying here. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6, we'll back up one verse to verse 14, and we'll read through 20. Paul writes, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and all supplication. To that end, keep alert 
with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth that I might boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word. You may be seated. Two main points on your outline this morning. Let me give them to you in advance. Number one, the shoes of gospel peace enable us to maintain our ground in the battle. If you're taking notes, would encourage you to write that in there. The gospel shoes of peace enable us to maintain our ground in the battle. Think about an infantry. Think about soldiers. They're wanting to maintain ground. Uh, They're not wanting to be pushed backwards. Uh, Paul used the language, stand firm, multiple times. We want to maintain our ground in the battle that we are engaged in. Number two on your outline is this. The shoes of gospel peace compel us. It's an important word there. Circle it on your outline if you're taking notes. The shoes of gospel peace compel us to advance our ground in the battle. We not only want to maintain our ground, but we also want to advance it in the battle. Look at verse 15. Let me draw your attention there. Paul says, And as choose for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Let me say just a few words here about the soldier's shoes in Paul's day. Remember, Paul's on house arrest when he's writing this letter, probably tethered to, uh, definitely within eyeshot of a Roman soldier. Paul would have had much time to examine that Roman soldier's dress or that Roman soldier's attire or that Roman soldier's armament. And what Paul is beginning to do is he's beginning to make connections metaphorically between the armament that he sees on the soldier and what is necessary for the Christian warrior to effectively wage war in the battle of the Christian life. Thinking about the Roman soldier's shoes here, the Roman soldier's war shoe, it was essentially an open-toed sandal. But when you think of an open-toed sandal, don't think about flip-flop that you wear to the beach. Entirely, entirely different. This war shoe, this open-toed sandal, it was comprised of a thick, multi-leather piece of leather uh, that served as the shoe's sole. And that, that piece of leather was, was secured with long straps that laced over the top of the foot, around the ankle, and then up the shin, were tied somewhere on the shin. It was securely affixed to his foot. It needed to be securely affixed to his foot. Needless to say, these, this wasn't your average piece of footwear. And not only was it a thick, multi-leather piece of leather, but the underside of this leather sole uh, would have been impregnated with with nail studs, heavily nail studded. Think cleat. Think cleat. Think what a football player wears. Think about what a soccer player wears. Think about what a track, a running athlete wears. Okay? These, These nail studs help the soldier to dig into the ground in an effort that he might stay upright. Remember, think... Paul has told us three times already, stand, stand, stand. A soldier needed to remain upright, provided him much traction, prevented him from sliding. Remember that most of the battle in Paul's day was hand-to-hand and foot-to-foot. Let me direct your attention back. If you're looking at your Bible to verse 12 there, Paul said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Greek word behind wrestle there is hand-to-hand combat. 
Okay, we're engaged in a very real battle with a very real enemy that has very real and lasting consequences, hand-to-hand combat. When you think about that now, think the shoes. Think about the necessity of the shoes for keeping the soldier upright in battle. A soldier on his back was useless in battle, and a soldier on his back usually did not survive very long. Having the right footwear was absolutely necessary to the soldier of Paul's day, and it is absolutely necessary for us in the battle of the Christian life. The overarching spiritual lesson here in verse 15, I think, is this. It's that the peace that comes through the gospel, the peace, the peace of God, peace with God, and then the peace of God that comes to the Christian as a result of the gospel makes us able to stand or to be immovable in battle. Because we have peace. If God is for me, who can be against me? What great peace we have in this life. It doesn't matter what enemy assails. I can be immovable in the battle. The soldier's shoes planted his feet firmly on solid ground. And the picture for us here is that we need to have our feet firmly planted in the solid foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection on our behalf. We need to have our feet, so to speak, firmly anchored in the foundation of that very gospel message in order that we might be effective in the battle that is the Christian life. But just because we're to have our feet firmly affixed to solid ground, just because we're to have our feet firmly affixed to the foundation, which is the gospel message, that doesn't mean that we stand still as Christians. It doesn't mean that we stand still. Okay, Look at Paul's language here. Notice that he connected shoes with readiness. If you have the New American Standard version of the Bible sitting there in front of you, you have the translation preparation. Same word there. If you see preparation, the word, the Greek word behind that is readiness or preparedness. Preparedness or combat readiness. That's, that's a key word when you think about footwear. Any soldiers in here? Raise your hand. If, if you have uh, fought in our nation's armed forces, or if you've been involved, not necessarily fought, but have been involved in our nation's armed forces, you know well what combat boots are useful for. Well, you can take out a whole army if that army has foot problems. If, if everybody's down on the ground because their, are, because their toes are, are cold and frozen, if everybody's down on the ground because their feet are blistered, they are much less effective on the battlefield. Shoes, combat boots for our thinking here are vitally, vitally important. Paul tells us that these shoes... Therefore, readiness or therefore preparation. If your feet aren't ready, friends, you aren't ready. If your feet aren't ready, you aren't ready. Either in physical combat or in spiritual combat. If your feet aren't ready, then you and I aren't ready. The right footwear gives the soldier what we might call expeditious mobility. Uh, We we have a term that, that we call the person who sits still. We call it a sitting what? A sitting duck. Yeah, sitting ducks are easily picked off. How do I know that? Because I had the privilege of going duck hunting with some friends that are sitting right over here a few months ago. Learned everything I know about duck hunting all in that two hours. Sitting ducks are easy to pick off. Okay, we need some expeditious mobility. And the right footwear, the right spiritual footwear gives that to us. Being grounded in the gospel message. 
If you think about combat boots for the soldier today, boots are what advance the soldier on the battlefield. Boots are what carry the soldier to meet the enemy. What is it that readies your heart for spiritual warfare? Paul tells us that it's the gospel of peace. What is it that readies your heart for warfare in the Christian life? Paul tells us right here in the text. He tells us that it's the gospel of peace that readies us for battle. Paul wants us to arm ourselves with the truth that we are in Christ perfectly secure in battle because we are carried into battle by the very peace that the gospel gives us. Peace of heart. I think the primary point that Paul's communicating here is that the mind is steadied and kept fear or kept free rather from fear from fear and flutter by peace. The mind and the heart are kept free from fear and flutter. Because we have peace with God. Because we have peace with God. The good news that God has reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ and the corresponding good news for us, that as a result of that, if God is for us, who can be against us? That steadies our hearts. That removes all fear. Does it not? Does it not? You see, if if the breastplate of righteousness protected the soldiers our heart from guilt, shame, and condemnation, then the gospel shoes of peace, my friend, protect us from fear. They protect our hearts from fear, from from retreating in battle, because we know that God has saved us in Jesus Christ. We are righteousness, we are righteous as a result of his righteousness imputed to our account. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Paul, Paul tells us here, that, uh, put on the, the gospel shoes of peace. Well, what, what is the gospel? It's the Greek word euangelion. Uh, literally, it means the good news. Well, the good news about what? I gave you an illustration several weeks back that if you were to be sitting on an airplane next to an individual, and as you put your luggage in the overhead compartment and sat down next to that individual, and you, you uh, handed that individual with whom you'd never met before a, a, uh, a parachute and said, hey, uh, buddy... Uh, hey, sister, put the parachute on. That person might look at you like you'd lost your marbles. But if you tell that same person with whom you passed the parachute to that you did the pre-flight check with the pilot and that you know that many rivets that are holding the leading edge of the wing on are missing, then that person will very gladly put the parachute on. There has to be bad news before there's good news, right? Euangelion, the gospel, it means the good news. Well, what's the bad news? The bad news is that sin has entered into the world. God created us perfect, Adam and Eve, in the garden, free from sin, free from spot, free from wrinkle, free from condemnation, free from separation with God. But Adam and Eve disobeyed. One instance of disobedience severed the relationship between God and man. You ever ask yourself the question, it's just one sin, is it really that big of a deal? Go back and read Genesis chapter 3. It's a real big deal. One simple, so to speak, sin of disobedience plunged the whole human race into sin. As a result of one man's sin, the many, Paul says in Romans 5, became sinners. But as a result of the one man's righteousness, Jesus Christ, the many were made righteous. You see, the whole Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, is all about peace. It's all about a rescue mission. God's divine rescue mission to restore peace or to reconcile 
his enemies to himself. And we weren't the ones, the sinners, we weren't the ones who initiated the reconciliation. The offended party, God, came to us, uh, Romans chapter 5 again, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. The offended party came to save the offender. How did he do that? God can't just brush our sin under a rug and forget that it never happened. God told Adam and Eve, as surely as you sin, you will what? Die. And God wasn't playing games there. That wasn't some kind of scare tactic. Now, we do that as parents from time to time, do we not? We tell our kids, if you do that one more time, I'm gonna. And they do it again. And we say, if you do it again, I'm gonna. And they do it again. And we say, all right, I've asked you three times now. If you do that again, then I'm... And our kids begin to learn they can get away with everything. Hey, I'm guilty. I'm an imperfect parent. Cower party of one. Right here. God is not an imperfect parent, my friend. When God said, when you sin, you will die, that's exactly what he meant. And so in order to pay for sin, someone must die. There is no sweeping it under the rug. There is no forgetting that it ever happened. There is no overlooking it. There is no excusing it. There is no excusing sin, period. Sin requires justice. Someone must die. Enter into God's divine drama, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh, lived among us. And by looking at Jesus, we've seen the Father. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. What we did not do, Jesus hung on a Roman cross as a substitution for guilty sinners. In other words, in their place. We sing, Jesus paid it all. And as he hung there, Jesus absorbed the full-on, unmitigated wrath of the Father towards sin. He drank God's wrath down to its dregs for us. What we rightly deserved, what was rightly due us, what was owed to us. The wages of sin is death. My friends, a wage is something you earn. What God is saying there in Romans 3 is what you're going to get paid for for the way you've lived is death. That's your wage. That's my wage outside of Christ. But Jesus paid our wage. Jesus paid our wage. Let me pause for just a moment and ask this question. Has he paid your wage? You don't have to listen to TV very long. You don't have to listen to too many interviews with prominent people, whoever they might be, before you hear some language like this. We're all God's children. God loves everybody. We're all God's children. Wrong. Put a chapter and a verse on that. It's wrong. We are made children of God. And I'll direct you back to John chapter 1. We were made children of God. Not born of natural descent or of human will, but by the will of God. Those whom come into right, saving reconciling relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, those individuals become sons and daughters. Those individuals are adopted. 
those individuals become children of God. Now, does God have a loving disposition towards all he's made? He does. Uh, or, uh, Psalm 145. God has a loving disposition towards all he's made. But God loves savingly those he's reconciled by the blood of his son. That's the gospel message, friends. So let me ask you the question. Has the gospel saved you? Not do you attend church, not as grandma a Christian, not do you own a Bible with your name stamped on it in gold lettering, not do you hold a position of leadership in the church, not are you on this committee, are you done this, or been on this mission trip, but do you know Jesus Christ savingly by way of his son? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Can't go over him, can't go under him, can't go around him. We must go through him. There's one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. His name is Jesus Christ. And the call is all who, all who will, come. Come. Come to him. Come to him to have the weight of your transgression. Come to him to have the guilt and condemnation of your sin paid for. Paid for. Because it must be paid for, friends. It must be paid for. God is sweeping nothing under the rug. That's the glory of the gospel. And when we understand that gospel, when that gospel message, as simple as it is, as a matter of fact, the gospel is simple enough that children can understand it. Jesus meant it that way. It's a simple message with profound and eternal implications. When we understand that message and when it takes root in our lives, when God removes the heart of stone, gives a heart of flesh, puts his spirit in us, changes us, when we become converted, when we're born again, when we're given new life, when we're made new creations, 2 Corinthians 5.17, then there is an accompanying peace that this world cannot match. And then we as Christians, because of what Christ has secured for us, I mean, death has lost its sting. Illness, that's a part of living in a Genesis 3 fallen world. Death, yeah, there's going to be that. But there's going to be a day when Jesus Christ will make all things new. We have great peace. Great peace rules in our hearts. The gospel shoes of peace enable us to maintain our ground on the battlefield. Paul talks about peace with God here. It's the gospel, but notice that it's the gospel of peace. Gospel is good news, good news of peace. We said last week that all men without exception, all women without exception need two things. They need peace with God and they need the peace of God. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. When we have peace with God, then we have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding or transcends all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Friend, every time that we are tempted to fear, we need to have our hearts freshly guarded by the truth of the gospel. The gospel guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And the word peace there, Irene, it means to join together or to bind together what has been separated. The, 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 the best biblical synonym for peace is reconciliation. 
The best biblical synonym for peace is reconciliation. That's what God has done with us, if you know him savingly. He's reconciled you to himself through his son. And friends, I'll tell you this, nothing, 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 nothing will make a Christian lighter on his feet, more ready and more prepared to move in battle than the confidence that comes with knowing that he or she is at peace with God. You see, it's the believer's sure-footedness in the gospel of peace that gives them the readiness to stand against the devil and his hosts. And you say, well, what does this peace mean for me? What does this peace of God mean for me? I have peace with God. Let me give, give, give you just a few things here. You can jot these down. These are bonus. They're on your outline. No charge. You ready? What does the peace of God mean for me? Just a few simple thoughts here. Simple but profound. Number one, it means that I no longer have to strive for his favor. It means no longer striving to try to please God, to try to garner his favor outside of Christ, because, friends, that's futile. We can't please God apart from Christ. You have Hebrews 11.6 memorized? I hope so. And without faith, it is what? Fill in the blank. Impossible to what? Please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so outside of Christ, we're, we're trying to strive to gain God's attention and his favor, but it's all futile. It's like trying to grasp after the wind, but when we come to know Christ savingly, when his righteousness is imputed to our account, there is no more striving because I stand on his merit, not my own. Number two, means no more running from him in rebellion. Peace with God means no more running from him in rebellion. For 19 years of my life, I ran, not seeking him. Romans chapter 3, right? No one seeks God. No one understands. We've all turned. We've all gone our own way. We like sheep without a shepherd. Isaiah 53. Peace with God means no more running from him in rebellion. Number three, it means no more approaching him in fear. Right? Hebrews 4.16. Now we have confidence to draw near to God. The veil there in the temple was, was torn in two. Jesus' crucifixion. We now have unfettered access to the Father through the Son. No more fear in approaching God. We have confidence in approaching Him. No more, no, more, no more guilt before His divine bar. Right? I'm not guilty anymore. Jesus paid my guilt. He paid it all. Drank God's wrath down to its dregs. So now, standing before God's divine righteous bar, I'm no longer guilty. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. How about number five here? No more fear in death. No more fear in death. That's what peace with God means. And we could keep going on and on and on about what God's peace means for us practically. But it means no more striving for his favor, no more running from him in rebellion, no more approaching him in fear, no guilt before his divine bar and no fear and death. You see, being at peace with God changes everything, my friend. Let a man know that his sins are forgiven, that he's reconciled to God by the death of his son, and that between him and God there is no longer any more enmity, and joyful that pilgrim will become. The man who knows that he is at peace with God and knows that the Lord looks on him with glances full of infinite, undivided affection, that man 
who knows that God no longer sees him in his sin, but knows that God sees him as righteous because of Christ, how joyful that pilgrim is. And how fear-free that joyful or that Christian becomes as they continue to grow in the Christian life. A man at peace with God dreads neither neither the ills of life nor the terrors of death, poverty, sickness, persecution, pain, lost everything. There's no fear anymore. Death has lost its sting even, the last enemy. What is there that a man needs fear when he knows that in no affliction there will not be a single trace of God's judicial anger toward him? See, when the burden of sin is gone, friends, all other burdens seem light in comparison. When the burden of sin is gone, all other burdens seem light in comparison. I watched a video a couple days ago of a mama in our congregation. She posted on Facebook, this is the mama of a 13-year-old young man who has struggled for some time now with, with many unanswerable health issues this past year. And needless to say, there have been some discouraging days for this family. This last Friday, they were up in St. Louis for some x-rays of his pelvis. He'd been having some significant discomfort, some significant pain. And when the doctor came in the room after these x-rays, he was concerned the problem might not be a fracture. It might not be a break in the pelvis, which is what they had thought, but it very well may be a tumor. And imagine that news. You're a 13-year-old young man in the room with mama. The doctor comes in with a very serious, somber face, very serious voice, and says, I'm not sure that it's just something simple in the bone there. It's very possible this might be a tumor. So pack your things up immediately and go from the clinic we are now over to Children's Hospital. You need a CT scan. As mom and her son got in the car in the parking lot, mom said this in her video. She said, I didn't know what to say to my son. I mean, here I am, the mom, and I'm supposed to have it all together, and I don't have it all together in this moment. And then this young fella, who probably is sitting in here this morning, turned to his mom and he said, Mom, there's not going to be any freaking out here. We're not going to do that, okay? We're not going to lose it here. He said this, he said, I know I'm in God's hands and we're going to find out what this is. So before they went in for more imaging, this young man prays. Matter of fact, mom turns to son and says, hey, do you think we ought to pray? And and he says, yeah, they both close their eyes. Mom's thinking she's going to pray. 13-year-old son's voice pipes in first. He begins to pray. And he begins to pray something like this, God, I'm in your hands, and whether this is good news or bad news, I trust you. Friends, that's God confidence. That's peace that surpasses all understanding. And that peace only comes from knowing that you're rightly united to Jesus Christ in the first place. No fear in death. No fear in life. This is the power of Christ in me. Mom went on to say, she said, I'm so humbled that my son preached to me all day. Let me ask you, friends, where does such assurance, where does such confidence in the face of difficult circumstances and uncertainty come from? Let me submit to you that it comes from a deep-rooted, unshakable, settled peace with God. I have more to say, but in the interest of time, let's look at point number two. The shoes of gospel peace compel us. They don't just enable us to maintain our ground, but they compel us. The the shoes of gospel peace compel us to advance our ground in the battle. 
Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, once said this. He said, to suppose that a Christian is to be motionless as a post and as inanimate as a stone, as pensive as a weeping willow, and as passive as a reed shaken by the wind is altogether a mistake. Grace imparts a healthy life, and life, new life, spiritual life, rejoices in activity. It's not only important for an army to be able to maintain its ground in the battle, but the determination in war is to advance forward and to gain ground. See, those that have been brought into peace with God, those who have right relationships, saving faith in Jesus Christ, now we go into the world and we preach, we declare, we herald the gospel message to the lost and dying, praying that we will advance and take ground. You see, in addition to standing, shoes are also for moving. And God expects for us to go on the offensive and to take the gospel of peace to others. Matter of fact, Peter said this in 1 Peter 3.15, maybe a familiar text to you. He said, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy and always be prepared, he said, to give a defense for anyone who asks for the hope that is in you. That same word prepared there means on your toes, right? It means looking for opportunity doesn't mean waiting for opportunity to come to us. It means going on the offensive and being prepared and looking for opportunities. Friends, I'm convinced that we miss so many evangelistic opportunities, not because they're not there, but simply because we have our eyes on ourselves and we're not looking for them. We need to be prepared to make a defense. Uh, the word defense in, uh, in, in the text there, 1 Peter 3.15, it's the Greek word apologia. To make it a, pen, uh, a, de- a, def- a defense for. It's where we get our word apologetics from. To make a defense for anyone who asks for the reason, for the hope that is in you. You see, sharing your faith is one of the best ways to maintain sure footing. Why is that, you ask? Let me rewind that sentence. Sharing your faith is one of the most effective ways to maintain sure footedness in the battle. Why is that? It's because every time you share the gospel with someone else, you're also sharing the gospel with yourself. You're reminding yourself of the same truths that you're preaching. And friends, we need that. I was talking to one of our elders the other day, and we just was uh, discussing the fact that we don't move on past the gospel in the Christian life. It's not as though we come into the Christian life uh, through the gospel message, and then we move on into something deeper or better. Like we move on into like 201 and 301 and 401. No, what happens in the Christian life is we come into the Christian life through the gospel message and we spend the rest of our life, we call that progressive sanctification, growing in an understanding of just what the gospel means for me, just what Christ has done for me, just what he has secured and procured for me. So walking with Christ for 50 years, I hope that I will have a deeper understanding and that my life will be more transformed as a result of the gospel that I understand then as compared to the day that I first came to Christ. We don't move on into something else. We just continue to move forward in the gospel. And when I share it with someone else, I'm just sharing it with myself, reminding myself of the very same truths. Let me ask you this question, friends. When you look at the lost world around you, how do you envision it being reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ? When you look at the, at the world around you, how do you envision it being reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let me submit to you that there are many Christians who don't envision the world being reached 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, they're busy doing a lot of Christian things, but, but sharing the gospel with the lost, that's, that's what pastors do. That's what evangelists do. That's what missionaries do. That's what we pay them to do. That's their job. Friends, proclaiming the glories of the gospel is the responsibility of every single Christian without exception. Some of us will have larger ministries than others. That's to be expected. But the responsibility to preach the gospel message has been entrusted to every single converted, born-again believer without exception. And you don't have to have a degree in systematic theology to do it. What did the blind man tell others? I once was blind and now I see, and that guy did it. And the gospel message is simple, able to be understood by a young child. But how do you envision the world being reached with the gospel? Let me encourage you to envision the world being reached with the gospel with some sort of equation that includes you. That includes you. Not just full-time vocational ministers, not just pastors, not just uh, missionaries, but that you play a role in reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't help but wondering sometimes how differently our hearts might respond to the need uh, of the gospel if we understood a couple of things. Number one, uh, that our lives are short. Just the brevity of life, right? Life is a vapor. Here for a moment and then quickly vanishes. Okay? But that also means that the lives of unbelievers are short, like a vapor that appears for a few moments and then quickly vanishes. In other words, we're not gaining any more time. Now, let me, let me, uh, let me bank that on the truth that God is sovereign in salvation. Uh, and so just because I don't share the gospel with somebody isn't going to mess up God's redemptive plan. Now, we don't want to be fatalist either and say, well, if that's the case, then why share our faith in the first place? Because Jesus said, go into all nations and make disciples. Okay, Preach the gospel. Be ready in season and out of season. Okay, We don't have much time left and neither do the lost. Think about this here. The, the current world population is somewhere in the ballpark of 7.4 billion people. That's billion with a B, by the way. Like I tried to punch that in the calculator yesterday and it didn't even go that far. According to mortality statistics, somewhere in the ballpark of 150,000 people die each day worldwide. Okay? 7.4 billion people across this blue dot we call home. Somewhere in the ballpark of 150,000 people die each day worldwide. If you do the math backwards, that's 6,250 people per hour. That's 104 people per minute. That's 107 people per second. Find your pulse for a second. Here or here? Statistics show that someone dies and slips into a Christless eternity about every time your heart beats. It's a little bit something like this. Here's the reality. You and I are going to go home in a few hours and we're going to become intoxicated 
by men in tights that get paid a whole lot of money to throw a dead animal around. We're going to enjoy each other's company. We're going to enjoy our family. We're going to have a good time, and rightfully so. Not, not condemning watching the Super Bowl. We'll go to bed tonight, and we'll retire our heads on our pillows, and we'll fall fast asleep, not being conscious at all of this. And we'll wake up tomorrow morning with coffee, the only thing on our minds. We'll go to work, and we'll engage in the activities of the day. And you just need to remember that this never stops. Now, these are the people that live next door to you. These are your coworkers. This is your family. It might be your children. It's your friends. How do you envision the world being reached with the gospel? And does that equation involve you? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And then there's that wonderful promise at the end of the Great Commission, and surely I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Friends, we're not only to be maintaining our ground by the sure confidence, the peace that comes from being rightly related to the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are to advance our ground by being a herald, a proclaimer, a declarer, a preacher of the good news of the gospel message. Are we being obedient there? Are we being obedient there? You don't have to have a degree in systematic theology. You have to know, I was blind, And now I see, and Jesus did it.